Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a privilege to be with you this evening. I encourage you to look in your scriptures or in the worship order to Revelation chapter 20, and there we will find our sermon text for this evening. And while you are looking for that sermon text, I want to share with you a quote from Bruce Metzger from his commentary on the book of Revelation concerning these verses. He says, The account in these few verses, in spite of their brevity, is one of the most impressive descriptions of the last judgment ever written. John's vision presents these truths better than any reasoned argument could ever do. The opening of the books suggests that our earthly lives are important and meaningful and are taken into account at the end. But the consultation of the book of life shows that our eternal destiny is determined by God's decision, by God's grace, and by God's amazing goodness. If you are willing and able, I encourage you to stand for the reading of God's most holy word. The word of God reads, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each, each one of them, 
according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the hearing, and the preaching of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. We have before us in Revelation 20 one of the most controversial passages of Scripture that I'm aware of. Anytime anyone gets into a discussion about the book of Revelation, uh, they want to know what do you think about the millennium? What do you think about the thousand years? And a lot turns on that. You can identify who is in which theological camp based on how they interpret the thousand years. As you know, there are three major millennial views. There is the pre-millennial view, the amillennial view, and the post-millennial view. Of those three, I favor the last two the most. I'm somewhere between an all-mill and post-mill, but I'm a very optimistic all-mill, so I'm almost in the post-mill camp. And for those of you who just checked out, let me add two more views. These are minor views. You've got to dig deep to find these views, but here they are. There is the pro-millennial view, and there is the pan-millennial view. The pro-millennial view says, I'm all for it. And the pan-millennial view says, it'll all pan out. And that's probably where the rest of you sit, is in one of those two camps. Now, when we're dealing with a passage like this, we have to remember all that we have been seeing in the book of Revelation. We don't want to just jump into chapter 20 as if nothing happened before this or as, as if Jesus has not revealed himself, his glory and majesty to us in any way. Nor do we want to shift gears and go from looking at the book of Revelation with all of its artistic beauty and its apocalyptic imagery and shift gears and suddenly say, well, now we need to view this part of the book in a very literal and wooden fashion. Now, we're going to keep reading this passage the way we've been reading the rest of the book, which is to say we're going to read it not in a quote-unquote scientific way, but in an artistic and apocalyptic way. John is receiving revelation from Jesus Christ about Jesus Christ and about his church. And what we find here, once again, is a description of God's judgment on the enemies of God, on the enemies of Christ and the church. But we also find on the other side of that judgment, God's redemptive power in delivering his people from evil and sparing them from the wrath that is to come. In other words, we've seen this movie before. We've seen this movie before. And ever since we went into chapter 12 until now, we have seen this kind of thing happen again and again. So we might say that John has been telling us for the last several chapters what he's just now told us. 
He's using a little bit different imagery, a couple of different words in there, but it all kind of comes down to the same thing. I would argue that what we have in Revelation 20 is the bookend of what started in Revelation 12. Remember in chapter 12, reach back in your memory, there we saw a dragon that was cast down out of heaven and cast down to the earth. And then after wreaking havoc on the earth with its two beasts and the great whore, he is now chained and cast down even farther into the abyss. Or as some of our translations say, into the bottomless pit. He is bound with a chain, which means that he is no longer free to roam the earth and to wreak havoc. He is no longer free to do what he wants. He's no longer free, according to this vision, to deceive the nations or deceive the elect among the nations. He's not able to deceive the nations in turning them against Christ. If you reach back in your memory bank even farther and go all the way back to the beginning from the time Adam and Eve came into the world, we see the serpent working to deceive people. He deceived them. He deceived the people after them. In the book of Job, we see that he was roaming the earth, walking to and fro upon it. He seemed to have free range, and yet he was accountable to God. And everywhere he went, he caused trouble, he deceived people, he destroyed people, he brought the fear of death upon people. But something changed in this vision. We see that something changed at the beginning of a time period called the thousand years. What in the world is that about, right? The thousand years. Something changed for him. This dragon gets put on a leash. He gets put on a chain, and his range of motion is limited. Now, the reason it's limited, the reason he is sentenced to prison for an extensive length of time is because of all of the sin and rebellion and crime he has committed. The thousand years, by the way, does not refer to a literal thousand-year period of time. As with all the other numbers we've seen in the book of Revelation, this number is just as symbolic. And here's what it basically means. And I'm saying this not only based on what we see in Revelation, but throughout all of Scripture, the way the, the number thousand is used. It's used to indicate an extensive length of time. So from a human point of view, thousand years sounds like a really long time. But relative to God, it sounds like a very short time. The scriptures tell us, for example, in Psalm 90, verse 4, and in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, that time is relative to God. They don't say it that way. They say that to God, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. In other words, from God's point of view, all of this is happening. He sees it at once. It's a very short, brief span of time. But to us, it seems like a very long time. And if we were going to put a number to it, we would say that the dragon in this vision has been sentenced to prison, has been bound with a chain, and in the abyss for 2,100 years so far and counting. It doesn't mean that he doesn't have influence, or that he hasn't uh, affected the world in some way, but in terms of having free range and roaming freely on the earth, uh, he can no longer do that. Why can he no longer do that? Well, the vision tells us that the reason he can no longer do it is because he is now 
prohibited from going about deceiving the nations. And the reason he is prohibited from going about and deceiving the nations is so that the church of Jesus Christ can carry the gospel of grace to all the nations and tribes and languages and peoples of the world. In other words, this dragon, this serpent, has been bound with a chain so that we can go about the mission of God in the world. And we have seen this, that from the time of Christ until now, the gospel has been going out. The gospel has been running freely to all nations and tribes and peoples and languages. Why would it go there? Because in those places, there are people who were redeemed by the Lamb of God. His blood purchased their redemption. And so the Spirit and the church go out and call the nations to come to faith in Christ. One scholar named Cornelius Venema says this about the thousand years. We have a representation of that period of history between the time of Christ's first coming and his return at the end of the age in which Satan has been bound so as no longer to be able to deceive the nations. The millennium is now, the period in which Christ's kingdom is advancing by his spirit and word and the nations are being discipled. This period is not a literal period of 1,000 years, but the entire period, perfect, complete, and extensive between the first and second comings of Christ. Compared to the vast expanse and power of the kingdom of Christ, the period of Satan's rebellion at the end of that age, prior to Christ's return, will be pathetically small and limited in scope. So what's happening in these first seven verses is we have a vision of a thousand-year period, all the space-time history from the first coming of Christ to the second and the last coming of Christ. On the one hand, we see how the devil, the serpent, the dragon is judged and bound. On the other hand, we see how judgment breaks forth in the world. Thrones are set. Verse 4 mentions, I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Now you have to go back in the book of Revelation to find out where these thrones are and who is seated on these thrones. It might surprise you to find out that... The thrones are the thrones of the 24 elders. The apostles and prophets of Christ, which are set around the throne of God and of the Lamb. And this image of many thrones being set in place around the throne of God is not new to the book of Revelation. It's actually imagery borrowed from the Psalms and the prophets. In Psalm 122, verse 5, David can rejoice about the fact that in Jerusalem thrones were set. He's the king, but he's rejoicing that thrones were set in place so that judgment could go out among the nations. In Daniel 7, verse 9, we find that thrones were set. 
thrones were set as the Son of Man rode his clouds up into the presence of God. As he went out before the Ancient of Days to the throne of all thrones, and yet along the way he passes by other thrones, these same thrones that we see in this vision. In other words, the apostles and prophets, the Word of God, the law and the gospel will bring about judgment. The nations will be judged by the standard of God's Word. Thrones are set in place and we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. The initial judgment comes from the law and the prophets. The second and more serious judgment comes from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Those who are seated on these thrones are the elders that we've seen throughout the book. But they're not the only ones in this vision. John also saw here people in white robes. The souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. In other words, these are people who had the sign and seal of the covenant of God upon their lives. The sign and seal they received when they were baptized in the name of the triune God. They have the sign and seal upon them. They have been marked and set apart as the church of Jesus Christ. Throughout the book, if we gather in all of the imagery, we see that these are the people in white robes who overcame the world, the flesh, and the devil by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith in His Word, and by faith in His blood. These are people who were slaughtered by the dragon and martyred for their faith. These are the souls we met who were praying under the altar and crying out to God, How long, O Lord? These are also the souls of people we met who were dressed in white and praising God around the throne, who stood with the Lamb on the mountain and worshipped God and brought down enemies, who were dressed as a bride for the wedding feast, who rode into battle behind the rider on the white horse. These are the people throughout space-time history who lost their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the point of all of this is that they have suffered and sacrificed their lives for the sake of Jesus Christ, but nothing at all was lost. They are safe and secure in the presence of Jesus Christ. And they are so safe and secure in His presence that they can continue serving as priests and kings until Jesus comes again at the end of all things. And so the dragon sees, the beasts sees, the great prostitute sees, the enemies of God's people see that you can take away the life of God's people on the earth, but you could never take away the life of God's people in Christ. They will not be hurt at all by death. Or as Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and the one who believes in me will never die. And if he dies believing in me, he will live. So physically, you can lose a lot of things. Your body may decay. Your body may be broken. It may be killed. Your blood may be lost. 
and yet your life is hidden with God in Christ. And that's the vision. That's the first part of the vision, a great big picture of what it looks like as Christ brings the gospel to the nations for a thousand years and you see the conflict and the struggle. You see the conquest of God's people over the devil and you see how the Lamb of God conquers his enemies. But there's more to this vision. In verses 7 to 15, we basically see what will happen as a, as a glimpse, or as, as Venema said, a pathetically small and limited scope of the, of the dragon's rebellion. What happens at the end of this thousand-year period? Well, again, thousand, I, don't hear me as saying something literal here. What happens at the end of this extensive, long period of time? Uh, we don't know how long it will be. But what will happen at the very end of that? Well, as the vision says, the dragon will be released for a time. I don't know if he's going to get out on good behavior. I doubt that's part of the deal. But he's going to be released for a little while. And what will he do? He, goes, he, will, he will do what many people do when they get out of prison. is He'll go back to his old ways. And the one thing he'll do is go out and try to muster the nations. He will gather people. And the interesting thing about this image is he will gather people from the four corners of the world. So he'll go everywhere, gathering people together, mustering an army to rise up against Christ and the church. In other words, he will go, out, go about deceiving them again. What I want you to notice here is that there is a number of people mentioned. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And if you're like me, upon first hearing that, you think, like the sand of the sea, you, we can't count that many. I mean, what is that? But relative to what else we've seen in the book of Revelation, this is a very fancy way of saying their number is finite. Why would I say that? You remember back when we talked about the number of the redeemed, the number of people for whom Christ died, the number of people who are redeemed by the Lamb? How many were there? Remember, it was a number that no one could count. And so here we see this vast army that's being mustered, and we think, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a majestic, a magnificent army. There's no way we can go against it. There are so many of them. Their number is like the sand of the sea. But we must remember what Jesus has already revealed to us in this book. And what he's already, already revealed is that the number of his people redeemed by his blood is a number that no one can count. In other words, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I want to reach back to the Old Testament for a moment. I'm not trying to avoid trouble here or redirect your attention, but I do want to help illustrate this for you. There are a couple of stories in the book of Kings, 2 Kings. When you have time, read it. 2 Kings 6 and, and also 2 Kings 19. You read those stories, and what you'll find is that there were a couple of occasions when God's people were surrounded by enemies. And the number of their enemies seemed to outnumber them, and they, they were overwhelmed with it. And in terms of just looking at sheer manpower, it's true that in both stories, the enemy army had far more 
people, they had much more manpower than God's people did. And this is the trouble we have with looking at things as men do, judging by appearance, counting noses, instead of remembering that those who are with us are actually more than those who are with them because many of those who are with us cannot be seen. Elisha the prophet prayed that his servant Gehazi would not only see the hordes of the enemy encircled around their city, but he prayed, O oh God, open his eyes that he may see that those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And what did Gehazi see? He saw the horsemen and the chariots of Israel, chariots of fire, sweeping across the hordes of the enemies of God, an invisible army fighting on behalf of God's people. Later on, Hezekiah and Israel encountered the same thing when close to 200,000 Assyrians encircled the city and their leader blasphemed against God and taunted the people of God and threatened to tear down the walls and to do all kinds of terrible things to the men, women, and children in that city. The king's response was to wear sackcloth and to cry out to God in prayer. The people followed suit. The sun set and the next morning when they looked out, 186,000 Assyrians were laid waste. Not a single shot from the city had been fired. Why were they laid waste? Because one angel of the Lord went out and slaughtered them, brought their lives to an end. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So even in this period, this brief period of time we see in Revelation, when the serpent, the dragon, goes out to muster an army of all the nations to show force in opposition to Christ and the church, some of us in our flesh would be tempted to fear the worst and fear what might happen to us. But I want to remind you as a lone voice crying out in the wilderness that you have nothing to fear. Trust in Christ. Trust in God and His promises. What we find in this vision is that even when the dragon goes out and musters his army, the battle is over before it even begins. The point of all of this is that at the end of all things, the world, the flesh, and the devil will be crushed and conquered once for all by God for His glory and for our good. So this serpent might be biding his time thinking, I can't wait till I'm, until I'm set free. I've got a master plan that will once and for all bring down the Christ. But he's got another thing coming, doesn't he? What he will find is that not only will he be bound with a chain, next time it won't be a chain, he will be crushed by the Lamb of God, by the word of his mouth. And that brings us to the great white throne of judgment. The great white throne of judgment. Interesting imagery here, isn't it? It's not just any throne. It's a great throne, and it's a white throne. It, this is a throne of majesty and glory. It's a throne of holiness, justice, and righteousness. When this throne appears in the vision, notice what happens. Creation runs away. The presence 
from his presence, the earth and the sky fled. And no place was found for them. There was nowhere they could go. If the sky cannot hide from the great white throne of God, if the earth cannot flee from his presence, what makes you or me or anyone else we know think they could hide? The imagery here is that no one will escape appearing before the throne of God in judgment. We will all appear before the judgment seat. And we will all appear to give an account for our lives. Not for the lives of our friends, not for the lives of our enemies, but for our own lives. We will all appear. The dead will appear, great and small, standing before the throne. Men, women, and children will appear before the great white throne of judgment. And books will be opened, and books will reveal what we have done, at least what some have done. Records have been kept. Stories will be told. Excuses will be made. All kinds of things will happen on this day, but everyone will give an account for their life before this great white throne of judgment. As the vision says, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And while you're sitting there perhaps trembling in your heart, thinking, I can't bear to remember what I've done. I don't want anyone else to know. And while you're thinking about the secrets in your own mind and the things that you've done that no one else knows about or you think no one else knows about, and you wonder, is it possible that all of those things are written and recorded? What about the things I've forgotten? The things I didn't know about? What about the things I thought were right but were wrong? All of that's going to be in the books. Will there be enough time to even judge my case, much less the case of everyone who has ever lived? Can I let you in on a secret? For all of you who are in Christ, when the book is open to the page of your life, it will not be your life that is revealed in those pages, but the life of Christ lived on your behalf. When you appear before the great white throne of judgment, unhinged, shaking in your boots, no less, terrified of what is about to happen, remember that your life is hidden in Christ. And on the page of your life is the blood of Christ that has washed away all of your sins and that has put in, in place of all of your sins the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because there's another book that appears, and that book is the Lamb's Book of Life. What is that book? That book is the list of the names of all the people throughout all of history that the Lamb of God was sent into the world to save. The Lamb's Book of Life is the list of all the people, of all the names of all the people through all the ages and all the nations and tribes and languages and people that the Lamb was sent into the world 
to purchase with his blood. Everything will be judged. Everyone will be judged. But only those whose name is found written in the book of life will be delivered from the lake of fire. Death and Hades will be judged. All the dead, great and small, whose names are not in the book of life will be judged and they will be found guilty for their sins. And they will be thrown into the lake of fire along with the dragon, the beasts, the great prostitute, the false prophet, all those who have rebelled against God, death and Hades itself. They will all be judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. But all of you who are in Christ, who have turned from your sins and put your trust in Christ, you will be judged according to what Christ has done on your behalf. Craig Kester says in his commentary on the book of Revelation, Many readers find it unnerving to find John speaking about God writing people's names in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Those who take John seriously naturally want to know, is my name included in God's book? Revelation does not list the names that are in the book of life. But it does give readers enough information to know that the comments about the book of life are designed to encourage faithfulness, not despair. John's counsel can be summarized in this way. Trust that the Lamb who died to liberate people from every tribe and language and people and nation for life with God also died for you. Trust that God wants you to put this faith into practice and then leave matters concerning the final judgment in God's hands. If any of you come up to me afterwards and say, how do I know if my name is in the Lamb's book of life? This will be my answer. Believing is seeing. Trust in the Lord and you will see his salvation. That is the only way you can know. Trust in the Lord and you will see his salvation. Let us pray together. O oh Lord, answer us for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to us. Hide not your face from your servants, for we are in distress. Make haste to answer us. Draw near to our souls. Redeem us. Ransom us because of our enemies. Pour out your indignation upon them and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. 
Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But we are afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set us on high. We will praise the name of God with a song. We will magnify Him with thanksgiving. And this will please the Lord more than a big fat sacrifice. When the humble see it, they will be glad. And you who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of the promised land, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of His servants shall inherit it, and those who love His name shall dwell in it. O oh God, we have heard some disturbing and troubling truths tonight from Your Word and Your Spirit has moved among us and we pray that you will grant us the grace to turn from our sins and trust in Christ. We pray that we will approach the day of judgment with confidence and assurance in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we will live day by day before the face of God in such a way that we bring glory and praise to your name. Help us, O oh God, to not play around with these things or to waste our lives. Help us to make the most of the time you've granted us that we may turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. For now we see, now we believe, and we know that there is a great day of judgment coming and we will all appear before that throne of judgment. I pray that everyone in this room and beyond this room in our corner of the world will by grace through faith in Christ stand before God with a pardon of sins in their heart and upon their lives. Blot out our sins from any book that keeps record of them. And if you kept record of our sins, none of us would stand Oh God, we cry out to you for your mercy to blot out the sin in our life by the blood of Christ and grant us the grace to live in obedience to his word. Grant us the grace to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil until Jesus Christ comes, we pray. Amen.